Welcome to a great day for hockey talk with your host, Paul Steigerwald. Paul Steigerwald standing by with a special guest. And let's go down the ladder right now and join him. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald. And on this episode, we're going to be talking to Pierre Maguire. Now, a lot of you younger fans might not even realize that Pierre Maguire was once a coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. He was an assistant to Scotty Bowman in 92 when the Penguins won their second of back-to-back Stanley Cups. And in 90-91, he was a scout for the Penguins. Scotty Bowman had hired him, and he did a really good job. And he actually helped the Penguins prepare for the Minnesota North Stars in particular in the Stanley Cup final in 91 and was a, an integral part of the Penguins' game plan uh, and strategy to beat the North Stars and win the first Stanley Cup. Pierre Maguire is an interesting guy. He left the Penguins to go to Hartford, was a, uh, a coach there, an assistant general manager there, and didn't last long in that capacity. He eventually would go down to the ECHL and do some coaching there, and then he finally moved on from coaching to become a color analyst for the Montreal Canadiens radio broadcasts, and that's really where his broadcasting career started. But he was a quarterback in high school. He was a standout defenseman at Hobart College uh, when he played hockey as a young guy. So he was a multi-sport athlete. He's extremely bright, and I know he's been somewhat of a polarizing figure at times. Uh, I pose this question to him, uh, as you'll hear in the in the conversation, about how it seems like the home fans always think he likes the other team better than the home team uh, because he's on national broadcast. And I think that's a, a burden that a lot of analysts carry in all sports. Uh, Pierre poo-pooed it a little bit, but I still believe that here in Pittsburgh maybe some people have some negative opinions of him because they think he doesn't really show enough favoritism to the Penguins, which is ironic since he actually did work for the Penguins. In any case, I find Pierre to be extremely interesting, unbelievably intelligent, really, really almost an encyclopedic knowledge of hockey. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Pierre Maguire. First of all, Pierre, welcome. Where are you right now? I'm driving to Boston, Massachusetts, Paul. I'm looking forward to uh, our chat today. I'm actually going to watch Massachusetts State Hockey Championship. Well, that's cool. Is your son Ryan involved in that by any chance? He is. My son's playing in that, and then right after that's over, I'm heading up to Toronto for the Hockey Hall of Fame inductions. I'm a member of the selection committee. My first time getting to go to the inductions. Well, before I get back into your uh, your life uh, with the Penguins in the early 90s and then even further back to how you ended up in Pittsburgh, since you just brought it up, how did you end up being on the Hall of Fame committee? What does that entail for you? Uh, I actually got a call from Lanny McDonald last year, Paul, right after the inductions of last year's class, the 2017 class, asked me if I had any interest. I said, absolutely. What an honor and a thrill just to be considered. Um, And our dear friend, William Scott Bowman, Scotty Bowman to the fans, uh, he actually had his time. He he gets three five-year, sorry, he gets five three-year terms. And uh, Scotty's last term was last year, uh, so he was no longer on the committee. So I had the the opportunity to take his seat, which is obviously not an easy thing to do. And how does that process work? In terms of how the selection committee works? Yeah. Uh, you present candidates, everybody on the committee, and there's 17 people as an opportunity to present uh, candidates to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And then you meet uh, right after the Stanley Cup is awarded uh, and just before the draft, usually, uh, in Toronto, and, and you go to work. Um, and it's, it's a tedious, very intense, and very private meeting. Uh, there's no leakage from that committee at all. That's the one thing I found out last year, and, and everything is extremely confidential. Okay, well, then I won't tell you that, ask you about whether Jim Rutherford's going to get in, but obviously the people in Pittsburgh are hoping that he does one day, so uh, there's there's something for you to think about. <laughs> Pierre, I, you know, I, I, I do want to go back to the, first of all, because of our fans, you know, they, they want to talk hockey when it comes to Pittsburgh, you know, because we've won cups, you know, five times and starting in 91, 92, and you were part of both of those cups. So I thought that'd be the first place I'd go with you today is just to kind of reminisce a little bit about your time in Pittsburgh. And uh, my first recollection of you being with the Penguins organization was one day showing up at a morning skate and, uh, you know, and, and this is Pierre Maguire, Scotty Bowman knows him and they brought him in. He's a scout and we didn't really know exactly what you were doing, but we knew that you looked young for a, for a guy in that role and that you must have had some special acumen because Scotty was the guy who kind of picked you. But could you tell us about how you ended up with the Penguins and what it was like when you first came to the organization? I was a really young coach at St. Lawrence University up in Canton, New York, and Scotty Bowman's daughter, Alicia, at the time was looking to go to school. 
uh, at St. Lawrence. And I was running practice one day, and he showed up. And uh, at the end of practice, I walked into my office, and there was Scotty Bowman in a baseball hat standing there. He goes, hi, I'm Scotty Bowman. I said, I know who you are, sir. Nice to meet you. And we talked about the practice that I ran, and he said, uh, do you mind if I get your number? I said, sure. Now, back in those days, cell phones weren't really uh, a very important part of society, Paul. So if you were going to call somebody, you were going to call them on a landline. And uh, two days later, I got a call from Scotty saying, I'm coming up again. I'm doing games for Hockey Night in Canada, and I'd like to stop in and watch your team practice. I said, absolutely, with pleasure. So he stopped by, and uh, he watched practice. And, and after the practice was over, he said, uh, if I ever leave to go to the NHL, would you be interested in coming with me? And I said, sure, absolutely, amazing. And believe it or not, Paul, he was offered an opportunity to go work with the New York Rangers before he came to Pittsburgh. And uh, I was going to go with Scotty to the Rangers. And Scotty got cold feet about the Rangers situation. He didn't like it. And that's how Neil Smith ended up being the GM in New York. And Scotty waited a year. And over the course of that year, we really became very friendly. And uh, I, when he got the job in Pittsburgh, he, I think I was the first call that he made right after the press conference he had with Craig Patrick and Bob Johnson. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, nothing. He goes, good, there'll be a plane ticket for you in Ottawa. Get to the Ottawa plane or airport, fly to Toronto, meet me there, and then we're flying to Vancouver. I said, any particular reason why? He goes, yeah, you're coming to the draft with me. So that's, what, that's how it started, Paul. It's an amazing story. Did he know anything about you, do you think, before he came to that practice? Like, like it's amazing that he would have had the gut feel or the, you know, make that instant sort of recognition of you being somebody that he would want to be associated with. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, and I've never talked to him about it, but we've been friends ever since the first time I've met him, and he stayed in constant contact. Our phone conversations used to be probably an hour to two hours almost every single night, even when I worked for him uh, way back then. And then when I wasn't working for him and I – made the worst career choice of my life by going to the Hartford Whalers, leaving Pittsburgh, which I never should have done, and I regret it to this day. Um, we, we Even when I coached Hartford against his Detroit teams or when I coached in Ottawa against his Detroit teams or when I started in the media, we talked almost every day Amazing. And for long periods of time. So I'm so grateful for his friendship and mentorship, and you know I feel like he's a father I don't have, and um, sometimes I think that he sees me as the older son. You know what I mean? So yes, I do. It's kind of neat. It's kind of neat. Well, and what I noticed right away was, though, that you had a knowledge of hockey. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, you have, you're similar to Scotty in the sense that you have, I think, a tremendous retention ability, that you can uh, remember names and places and stories and players and how they play and, uh, and so on, and, and, which is important if you're a scout. But Scotty has that obvious um, it's almost like a quirky uh, ability to do that. And I wonder if he saw that in you. Like, do you think that you maybe just obviously knew more about the game than, than most people, and he recognized that? Uh, I think over the course of before I came to Pittsburgh with him, we talked so much about strategies and ideologies and motivation and everything else. I think I got the pretty good feel from him that, you know, he see, saw a lot of similarities. I remember once, uh, when I was coaching in Hartford, and our the first 20 to 25 games I was a head coach there, we had the third best record in the league. And he called me up and he said, I love what you're doing with this. I love what you're doing with that. I don't like what you're doing with this. And then I made the adjustment, and we played them. And actually the first time I coached against them, we beat them. And, and I remembered calling him up the next day, and he says, what do you want? And I said, I just wanted to make sure you were feeling okay. He's, and he hung up the phone. <laughs> he was mad that we had won. <laughs> but uh, and then he called me back the next day and he said, "Hey, congratulations on the win." <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty funny, Paul. Um, I just think the world of him, and uh, you know, I, I, of eighty-five-year-old men that are still kind of working around the league, I don't know anybody in the league, whether they be twenty-five or eighty-five, that have uh, his knowledge, his intensity. His vision. Um, he's just an amazing, amazing man. He really is. And he stays current. That's what really blows my mind. And we had him on our podcast earlier. And, and for our fans who are listening to this one, you can always find it if you search a little bit further. Uh, Pierre, so you come, you come to Pittsburgh. And, you know, what were you during, doing during the course of that season? Because, you know, my first recollection of you making an impact, you know, was when you came and you helped prepare the game plans during the playoffs. But you were doing stuff during that season leading up to the Cup in 90-91. What were you doing? That was the longest year of my life in terms of travel, Paul, and you know how much I travel. Um, I had a condominium in Hingham, Massachusetts. 
I'm not sure I was there for 10 days over the course of the entire year. So I had a kind of a newfangled job. I uh, worked with our young players that had been drafted. I went and spent a lot of time with our players in the minor leagues in Muskegon at the time. Uh, I was around our NHL team. We, we had a big game. Bob Johnson, the late Bob Johnson, wanted a scouting report, so I gave him scouting reports on the opposition. Back then, there wasn't nearly as much satellite scouting as there is now. Uh, whenever there were big trades made, I was brought in or, or either personally by Craig and Scotty and Bob to talk in the office, or I was on the conference call when we were going over different possibilities. So I had a really vast far-ranging job the first year I was in Pittsburgh and I loved it because I think it gave me so much practical experience I spent a lot of time over in Europe whether it be in the Czech Republic or in Sweden didn't spend any time in Russia that year because uh, it was a different time again but Craig was amazing the one thing I don't think fans really truly appreciated about Craig Patrick his ability to delegate to people that he trusted he was an amazing delegator if he didn't trust you he would not delegate if he trusted you he would delegate and give you far-reaching responsibilities, Paul. Unbelievable. So I was so appreciative of my time uh, in Pittsburgh, especially with Bob and Scotty and Craig. But that first year was a whole lot of everything. It was amateur scouting. It was professional scouting. It was skill development, tracking our draft picks. But, I, again, I don't think I was home more than uh, five to ten days that entire year. You know, it's really funny because I remember interviewing you occasionally for between periods or whatever, and, when I talked to you, I would hold the mic to your face, and you would always like move your head closer to the mic, like you, you thought you needed to talk closer to it. You, you just you weren't you didn't seem like a guy who was really cared too much about broadcasting or anything. And then you end up becoming this incredibly prominent broadcaster. I just always found that kind of ironic. But you you uh, in that first year in the playoffs, you guys had a certain way of preparing the team for each series. Could you talk about that? Absolutely, and thanks for asking. Um... I would go out and be the advanced scout. Uh, so, for instance, in the 91 Cup run, we played New Jersey in the first round. So probably the last two weeks of the season, I just went and watched the New Jersey Devils and broke down every part of their roster, soup to nuts, power play, face-off plays, forecheck, in-zone coverage, goaltending strength and weaknesses, uh, coaching matchup situations. So I had them down soup to nuts. I presented that information to Bob Johnson. If you remember, Paul, the Pittsburgh Penguins that year in 91, their last game was in New York. The Devils played, I believe, the day before uh, in New Jersey. So I actually watched the game in New Jersey, scouting it, and then I met the team in New York and flew back to Pittsburgh. And when we were on the plane from, from New York to Pittsburgh, Bob Johnson came up to me, and Scotty was on the plane too with Craig, and Bob comes up to me and said, tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock, you're going to prepare the team for the first round of the playoffs. So you run with it. Bob was a huge believer in different voices. He didn't want his voice to be boring to the players. He didn't want the assistant coaches who had been in there all year having their voice boring to the players. So he wanted to make the playoffs a big deal. So they brought me in, and Bob introduced me and said, here's what he's done, here's what he's been watching, and he's going to get you ready for New Jersey. And that's what we did. And as soon as I finished that meeting, Paul, believe it or not, there was a huge tournament going on in the Czech Republic. Uh, and it was in Slovakia, actually, now, which was back then Czechoslovakia. And I flew over there with Greg Malone. I think I spent three or four days there. And then I flew right back because I had to watch the Washington Capitals. Uh, <laughs> because, because that's who we thought. We weren't sure, but that's who we thought would be our second-round opponent. And that's exactly who it was. So that that's how it worked, the entire playoffs. And then, obviously, in the final, um, they had me travel with the team. And we didn't have video coaches in those days. So what I did is I, I would break down the game upstairs. And then at night after the game, I'd create all the tapes for the next day um, for the team to watch if we had to make any adjustments. And you had an eight-point plan, did you not, for each series or something like that? Uh, seven. Seven-point plan. Seven points, sorry. You got it. What a good memory by you. Everything we did, I always try to create a seven-point plan so it wouldn't be boring for the players. Uh, and the Boston Bruins is the one I think all the players remember because they called me Mr. Subliminal. Their best player was Raymond Bork, and everybody knew it. And Raymond, back in those days, was playing anywhere from 30 to 35 minutes a game in the playoffs, which is crazy when you think about it. So after every point of my seven-point plan, I'd always say, and remember, hit Raymond Bork. <laughs> and, and I had videotape of him when, we were, when I would do this. 
and the players I think really appreciated it and liked it. And so that the rest of the playoff, they called me Mr. Subliminal. If you remember in that series too, we were down two games to none to the to the Bruins, and I remember being part of the meeting uh, when we got back from Boston, and Kevin Stevens started it, and basically what Kevin said was. I'm from Boston, and you know his brogue, Paul. I'm really embarrassed by the way we've played. I've let you guys down. I've let myself down, and I've embarrassed this organization. And then Joey Mullen, who played at Boston College, well, he got up and said, I played four years at Boston College, you know, and I, I have a lot of friends there, and I'm embarrassed by the way I'm playing. And then Paul Stanton got involved because he was a Boston kid who played at the University of Wisconsin. And then Barrasso got involved, and then it just took over. The players policed the room, and we never lost another game to the Bruins. We beat them four straight after that. And it was Artie who stood up first, right? Absolutely. Kevin Stevens, absolutely. Wow, that's a great story. And, you know, I, I can't help but think of, of Badger Bob and the influence he had at that time. I mean, the Penguins still use a great day for hockey as their slogan. Uh, so he has made a permanent, everlasting impact on the Pittsburgh Penguins organization, and you had a chance to work alongside of him. You remember the I used to call it the rink within the rink. Remember that thing he would do on oh. the floor with a, that was awesome. No one's ever done that. No one's done it before or since. And it was just a cool way to show the players what he wanted them to do strategically. He was so far ahead of his time when it came to visual learning. And if you look at the players today, Paul, and I really believe this is true, players today are not audio learners; they're visual learners. And Bob was way ahead of his time when it came to that. You're so right on the mark. Um, I can't say enough about him. Uh, I'll tell you a great story. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, we had just beaten the Bruins in the Eastern Conference Final in 91. And as you said, I looked young, and I was pretty young at the time. I think I was 29. Uh, to be in that position was you know, amazing at that age. And Bob called me up in the room in my hotel, at the, Vista, the old Vista Hotel, which is now the West in Pittsburgh. And Bob said to me, what are you doing today? It's Mother's Day. And I said, well, I'm going to call my mom, and I'm probably going to go work out and uh, get ready for the final. All my notes are ready. My tapes are ready. We knew we were playing against Minnesota. And he said, no, you're not. You're going out to Mother's Day brunch with Martha and I, his wife, Martha. So we went to the Gandhi Dancer um, over at Station Square. I'll never forget that. And we sat there for a long time. I bet you our brunch was probably four or five hours. I had such a great time, and all it was was Martha and Bob talking about life in Wisconsin, life when they were in Colorado, uh, life coaching in the NHL when they were in Calgary, uh, you know, all the things their children had done. I felt it was an amazing – it's one of those days, Paul, I'll remember till I have no memory. It was just an awesome, awesome Mother's Day brunch. And you think, isn't it interesting that you would be recruited by Scotty Bowman and then you would end up working for Craig Patrick – and also then having a chance to work alongside of Bob Johnson. So you're talking about three guys who, if there was a Mount Rushmore, I mean, they might be their faces or at least their names would be up there, you know, uh, and, and you had a chance to work with all of them, and they're all different. They're all different people. I mean, Badger Bob's way different from, from Scotty Bowman, and yet they were equally impactful. What a great statement by you. Every single one of those men, fine men, but all of them with different idiosyncrasies. Uh, just amazing, but all of them brilliant hockey people. Uh, Craig Patrick, you know, I think a big person who Ma molded him was Herb Brooks, um, the late Herb Brooks. And so you're kind of attached to Craig uh, and then vicariously to Herb just because of their relationship, especially with the 1980 Olympic team. Uh, Badger, just everything. He was always positive. Uh, I think, again, one of the people that was cutting edge in terms of wanting to be a visual guy rather than an audio guy. And Scotty, who was just Mr. Meticulous, everything was detailed beyond belief um, and maybe a little bit gruff and a little bit different than those other two. But man, oh, man, when he needed to, he could sell a plan. Here's the one thing that I think really allowed Bob and Scotty to become so close. Both of them had uh, mentally challenged children, and I think that was an amazing bond that was created between the two of them because when they weren't talking hockey, they were talking about the type of treatments that their children were having. Uh, and I thought that was that was an amazing thing to be able to, to listen to and, and participate in. And you wonder, don't you, Pierre, like those two guys might never have really had a chance to really 
even understand one another, you know, in, in hockey. Because I mean, there's a lot of different people in hockey. And, yeah, they say shake hands and say hi, but they don't really get to know one another. And sometimes they become rivals and don't even really bother to know each other. And, 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 be, and with Scotty and Bob being so different, the fact that they were thrown together, I think, was really kind of a neat dynamic that you would not otherwise ever get. And, on, and on, for, for an organization to have that dynamic, it seems to me it made the organization much better, much stronger, and much more diverse, you know? Oh, my gosh. You couldn't say it any better than you just did, Paul. That, that's perfectly spot on. It speaks to your access that you had uh, with the organization at the time and uh, the amount of information you were able to compile. No, that's exactly uh, what was being talked about. Um, you know, when Bob and Scotty were together, it was different at the start than it was at the end, Paul. And I think part of that was just learning to appreciate and respect one another. Badger really respected Scotty's ideology and his experience and his winning. And Scotty really appreciated the way Bob ran practices. Uh, I think that's one of the first things that I heard from Scotty when we were watching the first day of training camp in 1990, going into the 90-91 season was the first practice and the response of the players and the professionalism that the coaches had on the ice. And, and Scotty said, wow, this is really well organized. So I was really uh, – that was a relationship that I think never got enough exposure was a relationship between Scotty Bowman and Bob Johnson. And just a last uh, to comment on that is that, the, you know, Badger Bob came from college hockey, completely different culture than, than what Scotty was used to. And um, you know, look at what's happened in the game today. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody that has a better feel for the, the impact that college hockey has made on our game than you do. I mean, because you know so many coaches and you you were a part of it. You played college hockey. So uh, talk to that a, a little bit while we uh, were on the subject. You know, just what, what kind of impact Badger made, do you think, in terms of sort of accelerating the impact that college hockey could make on the game? Uh, huge. And I think he was one of the guys that everybody looked to. Uh, along with Herb, by the way, Herb Brooks. I, I think Herb and Bob probably were the two guys that helped create this path for so many college hockey players. Um, and if you look at it, you know, Joe Neuendijk coming out of Cornell University playing for the Calgary Flames was a huge part of it, and obviously Bob was a big part of Calgary. Um, all the college players, Joel Otto going to Calgary, Joey Mullen going to Calgary, uh, Gary Suter going to Calgary. If you look at all the college guys, Calgary, which was a Western Canadian destination that was really provincial, they believed in rough and tumble and Western bred hockey players. They probably had as many college hockey players than anybody. Remember, Brett Hall started there as well. People forget that. And uh, because of Calgary Flames, especially with the guidance of Bob Johnson, they weren't afraid to go down that road. You know, Jamie McCown's another one out of Ohio State that just comes to mind. So <laughs> Bob had such an impact on the growth of the game for college players and coaches because of what he did in Calgary and what he did in Pittsburgh. And then I remember Herb in New York. Oh, my. Uh, the Rangers had a, a really fun team to watch. They played a kind of a hybrid style of European and, and uh, NHL-style hockey, and Herb was the guy who brought it. And, and, and one, one thing that's similar about Bob and Herb was they both had a great appreciation for European hockey, for the Russians. And, and, and you know, you needed guys like that in the game to bring it to North America because otherwise I mean, there may have always been that chasm between the two. One of the best afternoons I've ever spent at an airport, Paul, was after the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. Uh, my compatriots at that time, Bob McKenzie, who still does work for NBC and TSN, and Gord Miller, who still does work for TSN and NBC, uh, we were sitting at the airport in Salt Lake, and our plane was delayed about four hours. Uh, we were flying to San Francisco and then back to Toronto uh, after the gold medal game. And in comes Herb Brooks. And Herb's team obviously lost to the Canadians in the final. But he sat down and talked to us about the responsibility of young people in hockey to help grow the sport. And he said, especially you guys who are in the media. And then he looked right at me and he pointed at me. And you, McGuire, he didn't call me chair. And you, McGuire, not just because you're in the media now, but because of the access you have in the summer to all the hockey schools and the teaching that you do. And he knew that about me. I still do all those, that, those things in the summer in terms of working with young players. And yeah, I'll never forget. So he talked, and we gave him the floor. Paul, I'm telling you, it was one of the most enlightening afternoons I've ever had. It was awesome. And it was all Herb talking about responsibility to grow the game, how he felt you could grow the game, the influence of college players, the influence of European players, the influence that uh, young coaches were having on the game 
at that point, the red line was still in. So um, he was talking about, and he was a big proponent of this. He wanted the red line out of the game. And I spoke about that forever and ever um, because you wanted younger, smaller, faster players to get involved. We didn't want the game to be like tackle football. But that was that was one of the fascinating days of my life, Paul, was being with Herb at the <laughs> Salt Lake. It was I remember I ended up sitting next to him on a plane coming back from the All-Star game out west. He was sitting, I was sitting next to Herb Brooks, just by chance. I'm sitting next to him, and he says, this is the best player not playing in the National Hockey League. And he pointed to, he said, Corey Millen. And Corey yeah. Millen was playing uh, in Switzerland or somewhere. He, wasn't, he was playing in Europe, and he ended up coming to the Rangers. But now, you talk about Corey Millen. He fits totally to a T, these young, fast players that you see today in the National Hockey League. Right? And Corey Millen was a dynamo, a University of Minnesota guy. New Jersey Devils gave him a chance. I mean, he kicked around a little bit. Uh, he was a dynamic player over in Europe. But um, I could see how Bob – or, uh, sorry, how uh, Herbie would feel that way because – Corey was at his time, anyways, especially when he was at the University of Minnesota. He was as good as any college player there was at the time. So, Pierre, uh, just quickly now, we're gonna, you know, because I could talk. I could, seriously, I could talk to you for, as you know, hours. We we both love the game and love to talk about it. So, but but you know, '92, you were a coach. You weren't a scout yeah. anymore. Now you're behind the bench. And I remember when the line changes were made, they had you. You put your hand on the top of your head. Scotty had a had a horn that he blew sometimes at practice to get guys to change quickly. <laughs> remember that he was using a, yeah. a, a boat horn. But uh, duck, no, it was a duck call. Oh, it was yeah, a duck, duck call. Yeah, it was a duck call. <laughs> That's even better. Uh, but then you uh, you had a signal that you didn't. You have a signal that you gave where you put your hand on top of your head or something. Like that? We we were a big matchup team at the time and. Uh, so Scotty trusted me with those matchups, and when I got a feel, uh, especially in defensive zone faceoff situations, if I didn't like something that I was seeing, I would put my hand over my head, and that would tell the centerman they had to really bear down on faceoffs. We wanted the puck out in the neutral zone because we just wanted to change our defense. So, uh, yeah, no, I'd hold my right hand over my head, uh, and nobody from the opposition ever saw me do that, so they never figured it out. Uh, it was really good. You know the interesting part of that story, Paul, you talk about me going to coach. Believe it or not, uh, I was made the head coach of the Muskegon Lumberjacks for about 24 hours. Not kidding you. We had training camp out in uh, Colorado, and then at the end of training camp in Vail, Craig Patrick called me up to his hotel room and said, uh, we're sending you to Muskegon. Uh, don't tell anybody, but we're going to name you the head coach out there. We think you're going to do a great job with our group. We're really, really excited. We've got a lot of young players that we've drafted, and you helped draft some of them, and we want you to help cultivate them. So I said, sure, no problem. I was really excited. You know, to be 29 years old and be named head coach of a professional team, that's pretty exciting. So I went to Muskegon for one day. I'm not kidding you, Paul. I was in Muskegon for one day. I stayed at the Hilton Hotel, and I had a steak at the Tahota House Steakhouse right across the street from the rink in, in Muskegon. And uh, after one day, I got a call, and it was Scotty, and he said, Get on a plane. Uh, the ticket's there for you. So back then it was Northwest Airlines, not Delta. Uh, you'll fly to Detroit and then take a, a plane from Detroit to Toronto. I'll pick you up at the airport. So he did. And uh, I said, what are we doing? I didn't even ask. I said, what are we doing? He said, we're going to the Toronto Maple Leaf Buffalo Sabre game. So I said, okay. <laughs> I went to the game with him. He said, break down Buffalo. Don't worry about Toronto. I got Toronto. Break down Buffalo. So I did. And that when we got in the car to go back, we were going to drive back to his house in Buffalo. He said, uh, you and I are going to be the new coaches in Pittsburgh. Scotty uh, is going to be named head coach. Or he said, I'm going to be named head coach, and you're going to be my assistant. Um, so wow. we're driving to Pittsburgh the next day. So we flew, drove back to Buffalo, and then the next morning we went down to Pittsburgh, and the rest is history. And Barry Smith was the other assistant, and he was just recently yeah. named a coach again in Chicago, which is amazing. And, and uh, what I remember, Pierre, was – Skill development. You guys stayed on the ice, oh, and you man. and you worked with players, and and you would do those drills in the in the center circle where you'd pass the puck to defensemen back and forth, back and forth. You know, and and before I finish this, I remember when Badger took over as coach of the team in his first press conference. He said, when you know, you, he says when you're watching Bob Johnson, he referred to himself. He said uh, you're going to be seeing a lot of work on fundamentals, uh, shooting, passing. Uh, you know, so uh, that's what you did. That's what you did after practice with players. Thousands and thousands of hours, and whether it was with Paul Stanton or Jimmy Pack or even Larry Murphy, Joey Mullen, uh, Larry and jo or Joey loved to come on the ice early. So I'd work with them early before practice, and afterwards guys like Stanton and Pack and, and Yager would stay out, and then we got McEachern, uh from the Olympic team. Those guys would stay out for hours 
we had to kick Yarmer off the ice. It got crazy after a while. It really did. The other name you didn't mention, I think it's really appropriate to mention because not only was he a great coach in Pittsburgh, he was an awesome player, Rick Keel. Oh, sure. I loved, I loved working with Rick. Um, he and I were on the bench with Scotty during that 91-92 season. And um, Rick was as great as there was in terms of teaching players how to manufacture offense. Not an easy thing to do. But, man, oh, man, was Rick good at it. He was so good at it. And it, everybody marveled at Yarmir Yager's improved shot over the years, especially after his third year in the league. His shot really got good. That was all the influence of Rick Keel. Yep, he worked Rick, with him every Rick day. Rick was great mm-hmm. every single day. I, and I was out there with him, and I can tell you, Rick was tremendous. And a lot of the stuff I heard him passing on to Yarmir, I pass that on to young players today. So I, I can't say enough about uh, Rick Keel. So while you were doing that, you were also doing some scouting, and so you felt you had an influence on the Penguins drafting both Marcus Naslin and Martin Straka, who both were yep. taken late in the draft because the Penguins had had great years, so they weren't guys who went at the top of the first round. They went lower in the first round. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Don't forget there was a guy that we took number five overall in the 1990 draft. That was my first draft, a guy by the name of Yager. He was pretty good. <laughs> yes, he, he was. Pretty- you know what? It's a great story. So I, I told you at the beginning how Adi said there's a plane ticket for you at the Ottawa airport. I'll meet you in Toronto, and then we'll fly to Vancouver together. And he asked me to prepare a list of who I thought the top 50 players that were available for that draft in 1990. And he said, I want you to write something about each one of them. So I did so he could study because he hadn't seen any of the players. He was working for Hockey Night in Canada. He only knew the pro players. He didn't know the amateur players. So we sat down, and we went over this whole list of players. And he said, who do you like the best? Because everybody was talking about Peter Nedved and Owen Nolan. And I said, I like Yarmir Yager the best. And he goes, that's all I keep hearing is Yarmir Yager, Yarmir Yager. And I said, Scotty, I don't think he'll slide to us at five. I think Philadelphia will take him at four. And I, I'm talking to you, Paul, from a car in Boston, Massachusetts. I have no notes in front of me. Number one that draft was Owen Nolan. Number two was Peter Nedved. Number three was Keith Primo. Number four was Mike Ricci. Number five was Yarmir Yager. I remember like yesterday because when it got to four, Scotty said, are you sure about Philly and Yager? I said, the only person I could see them taking would be, besides Yager would be Mike Ricci because I've heard them talk about him being like Bobby Clark. And they really like, <laughs> obviously, still like Bobby Clark. And sure enough, the Philadelphia Flyers, I think it was Russ Farwell was the GM at the time, the Philadelphia Flyers are proud to select uh, from Peterborough in the Ontario Hockey League, Mike Ricci. And I was like, okay, Scotty, get up there and say from Cladno in the Czech Republic. And Bob Johnson looked at me and goes, you really like this guy, huh? And I said, oh, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, what's funny is Craig Patrick had ra- arranged, like, uh, from our, the story that Craig tells me is that uh, Yager basically was kind of telling other teams he didn't really want to come over because he was hoping that Pittsburgh would draft him. He didn't tell Pittsburgh that. He told the other teams that. So he kind of discouraged some of those other teams at the top from taking him, and which is, I think, a really interesting sidelight to that story. That uh, is great. I never, I, you know what, in all the years I had never heard that, but I knew this. The one thing that I knew, because we were talking about it in Craig's Hotel Suite, Bob Johnson, Scotty, and I, Greg Malone was in that meeting too. Um, Craig saying, if we draft him, I'll be able to get him out. Because back then it was really hard to get players out. It was really, really difficult. Uh, there was no agreements between the leagues and the NHL. It was really a tough task. Craig said, if we take him, don't worry. I'll get him out. And he w- he was right on it. Craig got him out right away. He sure did. And, boy, what an impact he made. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. So then Marcus Naslin, Marty Straka. So, okay, I want to move forward a little bit here because, um, you know, you went on to Hartford. And we'll just, let's gloss over that. I, you know, I think the, the tough part about that was that you had to compete against the team that you, you first came into the league with and maybe – you know, it, you were trying to you were trying to establish yourself, and it looked it just seemed like an awkward situation uh, from my point of view. You know, I, I you know what? There's a couple a uh, couple things that I think are really important about that. I learned a lot in Hartford. Um, I I don't regret too much. I wish I had never left Pittsburgh. Uh, I did because of a couple reasons. One, the contract that was presented to me by the Whalers was really good compared to what I had. From Hartford or from Pittsburgh, and um, I wasn't sure if Scotty Bowman was going to stay in Pittsburgh or not. I really wasn't sure. I'm telling you straight up. And sure enough, a year later, he left. So I wasn't sure about any of that. And uh, this gave me an opportunity to go and, and be part of a you know building program. Brian Burke was really a convincing person at the time. He was a general manager, and 
he left what was supposed to be a three-year rebuild, Paul, and that was my contract at the time, which pretty was pretty long for coaches back then. Actually, I think my contract was four years. Um, Brian left after nine months to go work in the league. So the man that was supposed to help us do our rebuild and who I really trusted, he left. Um, and that kind of set the program back a pretty substantial way. The one thing I'm probably the most proud of in my time in Hartford, uh, in the second year, we cut 80 goals against from the year before. If you did that in today's NHL, you would be an unbelievably wealthy guy. <laughs> Trust me on that. You would be really wealthy. But we cut 80 goals. Think about that, Paul. More than a goal a game uh, against down. That, that's, and I was so proud of our players for buying into that and what we did. So we were right in the playoff hunt the second year, right until the very, very end. Um, and then we had a string of injury, a rash of injuries down the end that really set us back. Who was your goaltender? Was it Mike Liute or was it the other guy no, with the long names? The guy we, with the long had, name. I keep trying oh, to we had a bunch of them. We had, uh, I had Sean Burke. I had Frank Pietrangelo. I had Mario Gosley. And I had Mike Leonard Doozy. And I think the last year I was there, Leonard Doozy might have played more than the other guys. Just, and you never heard of Mike Leonard Doozy. And he was a good man. But that's how part of the injury situation. Sean was always hurt there. He had a hips and back problem. Um, and uh, Frankie just never, for whatever reason, could never get back to what he was in Pittsburgh. And he was so good in Pittsburgh. Mario Gosselin retired, and then we got stuck with Mike Leonard Uzi. <laughs> okay, Pierre, so you you were I, – I, I learned early in my broadcasting career in college, actually, the, the very first teacher I had said, broadcasting is a people business. Keep it in mind. It's very simple. As if he said it on the very first day of school. <laughs> <laughs> I never forgot it. It's so true. Like, like the, what you, where you go in this business has a lot to do with who you meet, and, you know, you have to be prepared and ready to do it. But you, you need people to support you, have faith in you, give you an opportunity. So I guess that's true in any business, but for some reason in broadcasting, it seems like it's really a big, big deal. Um, Sam Flood is a guy that you met, what, in college? I was a young coach at Babson College, and his father used to run a thing called the Europa Cup in Boston. And I helped Mr. Flood Sr. run that probably for three or four years. And just to put it into perspective, some of the best players in North America at that time, uh, they didn't go to the U.S. program. They came to Boston in the summer, and they would play at the Europa Cup. And I had players like Tony Amonti, Jeremy Roenick, Sean McEachern, Billy Guerin, Bobby Kellogg. I can go on and on. Guys at Garth Snow, guys that were drafted in the NHL, played in the NHL for a long time. I had all those kids when they were 15, 16, 17, uh, just before their draft years. I mean, it was just it was a potpourri of amazingly good players that you had the privilege of working with. So that's when I first met Sam when I was coaching at Babson, and he was just graduating from Williams College. And Sam was now the basically the head of NBC Sports. Is that right? He's the executive producer of the NHL on NBC. He runs a studio show for Sunday Night Football. I would say on the depth chart at NBC, he's number two, right behind Mark Lazarus. So he's way up there, yes. And he handpicked you, more or less, to, to usher in the era of NBC sports carrying hockey. And how did behind the glass become a thing? It's a great question, and I'll give you a very short answer. In 2004, the Tampa Bay Lightning played the Calgary Flames in an amazing seven-game series. Game seven was down in Tampa. Matt, uh, Sam Flood approached me, Paul, and he said, while I was working on a set, by the way, for TSN outside, it was really hot. He walked up, and he was with all the NHL hierarchy, and he said, hi, my name's Sam Flood. And I said, I know you. I work for your father. He goes, that's right. And he goes, uh, we're going to get the rights to the NHL next year. And he said, we have an idea, so I want to ask you point blank, do you think you can do it? I said, what's your idea? And he said, do you think you could broadcast a game from between the two benches? So I said, I know I can do that. That won't be an issue. I said, but I guarantee you the NHL will never allow that. Now, I had been in the NHL for over 14 years at that point, whether I was coaching or broadcasting or scouting. So I, I kind of knew the league. And, and he goes, you leave that to Dick Ebersol and myself. If you think you can do it, you got a job. I said, I know I can do it. He goes, you got a job. That was it. That's it. And so you ended up there, and that's a really cool job. I mean, it's a, it definitely changed the way games are, are called on television. And, 
Uh, you've done a great job with it. Um, you know, I, I think the big thing that I think of is, is safety. I mean, Bob Airy here in Pittsburgh, he's gotten hit in the head with sticks and pucks, and it's dangerous down there. That's why the league might not have allowed it, if, in your mind, I'm sure. One of the reasons, anyway. That and the, the information. Yeah, um, the accident. They didn't want injuries being reported at the time. It was a different league at the time. It's become more media-friendly. There's no question about that. But uh, you're right, Paul, about the injuries. I, uh, I've i had sutures hit over the head with a stick. It's a, it's a sad story now, but at the time it was funny. Uh, the late Carl Rakunik, who was on that plane tragedy over in the KHL, he got involved in a physical collision with Alice Kotalik of the Buffalo Sabres. Rakunik was playing uh, for the Rangers, and Kotalik was playing for the Sabres right in front of me. And uh, Rakunik's stick came down over the top of my head with a lot of force and split me wide open. I was bleeding really bad, Paul. And uh, Rip Simonic, who's a legendary trainer, since the Buffalo Sabres have come into the league, he's worked for them, and he still does. So Ripper looks over at me, and he says, Hey, Pete. You're bleeding bad. I said, no kidding. Thanks for the newsflash. <laughs> so I said, give me a towel. And so my producer says to me in my ear, his name was Doug Walton, he says, Pete, are you okay? I go, yeah, I'm okay, but I'm bleeding really bad. You can't put me on camera. I'm just going to use this towel to stop the blood from you know, going into my eyes, and I'll finish the period, and then I'll go get sutured up by the uh, doctors of the Sabres. So I did the whole first period, and then at the end of it, I went down the tunnel, the Sabres doctors were great. And rather than suture me, Paul, there was a new type of thing. They used surgical glue, and they shot it into my head. I'm not kidding you. And it closed the wound in seconds. Wow. And uh, I was so grateful for that. Yeah, I had a big bump on my head, but it closed the wound really quickly. And to to his credit, uh, both actually, to their credit, both players, Coda Leak came up to me after the uh, first intermission was over and said, I'm so sorry. I said, you never apologized to me. You did nothing wrong. And Rakuna came right up to me before the puck drop in the second period, and he said, I'm really sorry. I think it was my stick. I said, you don't need to worry about that. Get out there and play. You don't need to worry about that at all. So both guys, it just shows you the camaraderie, the way the players are in the league. They're really, really honorable people. Pierre, uh, how much traveling do you do a year? Would you say, do you know how many miles maybe? Uh, over 200,000. Last year would have been a little bit longer, Paul, because I had to go to Korea for the Olympics. And I had I missed the month of January because of uh, prostate cancer. I had surgery on that, as you know. And um, so I missed about a month of work. But I flew a little over 200,000 last year. I probably, If I would have worked the month of January, I would have probably done 250,000 miles last year. What's the hardest part about being a scout? Being by yourself. You're by yourself all the time. Um and so it, it's tough because you're not in a lot of times if you're doing amateurs, you're not in major cities. You're by yourself, whether you're out on the prairie in Western Canada or you're on the prairie in the USHL in the middle part of the United States or you're doing the colleges and you could go, let's say, on a Friday night from Hanover, New Hampshire, up to Burlington, Vermont. And then on a Sunday afternoon, you might be able to catch Boston College player a BU game. So you had little pockets where you would go, but more times than not it's just it's the grind of being by yourself on the road all the time and what about being over in europe like you were in russia at times when oh, you, yeah. you were behind the iron curtain ever or what yeah oh yeah i was behind the iron curtain a fair bit um i didn't mind that so much it was kind of like a voyage it was an adventure you know what I mean? yeah yeah um i remember one time uh going to see uh i want to say it might it was straka definitely going to see marty straka and uh i got pulled off a train and they thought I was a drug mule. Um, and I was like, no, I'm going to watch a hockey player play. Uh, his name is Martin Straka. And the guy says, oh, yeah, yeah, we know him. We know Straka. Really? So, That's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't get in any, thank goodness, I wasn't in any trouble. I knew I was innocent. But they thought, they were like, what would you be doing here? You know? And I'd be like, I'm going to watch a hockey game. So, yeah. When you did stuff like that, did you like did you like make eye contact with other guys that you knew were doing the same thing you were? Did you talk to them? How did the, how did scouts interact in situations like that where you were scouting a player in in a place where maybe there weren't a lot of guys but there were some guys? Uh back in those days there weren't nearly as many guys, so it was a pretty small pack of people that would have the ability to go to different countries. Um, the, one of the guys I really got along with was John Chapman out in the Western Hockey League. He worked for the Philadelphia Flyers, still does. He coached all of the Sutter brothers, believe it or not. He coached every single one of the Sutter brothers in Lethbridge 
believe it or not. So just amazing hockey man. So I got along really well with Johnny. Uh, Larry Plo, uh, I used to see Larry, especially when he was working for the Rangers as assistant GM. Spent a lot of time with Larry overseas. I loved my time with Greg Malone. Uh, Bugsy and I uh, worked together, and I just really enjoyed working with Greg uh, in Pittsburgh. But you didn't, you know what's interesting? Probably one of the best stories is J.C. Trombley, <laughs> the late J.C. Trombley. I met him over with uh, the late Jack Bowman and Doug Robinson. Doug was scouting for Montreal. Jack was scouting for Buffalo. And J.C. was a European scout uh, for the Canadians. And I remember... We were sitting in this restaurant in the Czech Republic, and he says, hey, you got to try this soup. So I said, what is it? It just looked like dark broth. I said, what is it, like um, beef broth? He goes, oh, no, no, it's better. Just try it. I promise it's good. So I ate it, and I thought it was great. I, I really did, but I never found out what it was until that night. It was garlic soup, <laughs> and I was, I, was, I was sitting in my bedroom in this small little hotel in, in uh, the Czech Republic, and I was like, Boy, it smells like garlic in here. Yeah, it does smell like garlic in here, Pierre, because you just ate a big bag of garlic. Yeah, it's a good thing you work by yourself down there between the glass. Oh, Except when you're yeah, interviewing. No in be- <laughs> there was no in between the glass then. But yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, I I, I got to ask you um, if you could be commissioner for one day, what would you do, Pierre? I would expand to Quebec City. Hmm. I would put a team. I know they're going to put a team in Seattle, but I would go to Quebec City. I look at what's gone on in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the success of that franchise and the passion of that fan base and the way they carry themselves as an organization. They have unbelievable ownership, phenomenal, phenomenal ownership. Um, and they've made themselves kind of a weekend team. So they're not just a city team, they're an area team. And they get people from northern Minnesota and northwestern Ontario and eastern Saskatchewan and all over the province of Manitoba. So rather than be 750,000 strong, which is what their metropolis is, Paul, it's probably closer to 2.5 million when you take all the areas around them. And that's what I would try to do with the Quebec team. I know you can't infringe on the Montreal Canadiens, but you could still go. You could still make it an area team where you'd have the eastern part of Quebec. Uh, the western part of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Um, you know, you could draw from northern Maine. You could do that. And I, I really think, and you know, Paul, the league really had success in Quebec City. You know that and I know that. It was an unbelievable place to go. Um, I, I would do that. If I could be commissioner for a day, I'd put a team in Quebec City. How do you watch games? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> um, I usually watch away from the puck. Uh, I usually watch with the sound down because I usually watch three or four games at a time. So it's. Um, and how do you do that? You'd have them. Sp- I just I have screens, four screens, and just watch different screens. And I watch if I, there's one. For instance, I'm doing Anaheim and Vegas uh, next Tuesday, or sorry, next Wednesday in Vegas. So what I did last night is I watched Vegas, and then I watched all the games, but I really focused in on Vegas at Ottawa. Uh, I watched Anaheim the night before play Calgary, even though I was working um, out west. I was working in Colorado that night, but I still watched them. And I'll watch both those teams play the rest of their games, and then I'll be ready for that game on Wednesday. That's what I do. I find it interesting, Pierre, that uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning are doing so well, and Steve Eiserman is no longer their general manager, and yet he built that team. Oh, yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, he did. He did a great job there. Um, the two best teams in the league right now, Paul, uh, one of them is, is Tampa, and they're really, really good, and the other one is Nashville, and they're off the charts right now. I would give Nashville a little bit of an advantage over Tampa only because Victor Hedman's not playing for Tampa right now. But if you look at it, both goalies are really good. Um, Vasilevsky for Tampa's off the charts, and, and Pekarene's awesome. Uh, best, probably the best puck handling goalie in the league. Both defenses are big and very mobile. Uh, and both teams have elite offensive players, uh, and they're extremely well coached, both teams. So I would say those are, right now, as we speak, those are the two best teams in the league. Is your role a little different this year? No, not really. Um, I'm doing a, a lot of the Western games because hockey's changed on NBC. We no longer have rivalry night. So what we're doing is called Wednesday Night Hockey. And Sam Flood, who's just such a visionary, he's grown the game pretty much as much as you can in the eastern part of the United States. And now he wants to try to grow it in the West, and that's why they're putting such a spotlight on the Western Conference games. 
uh, which they've never done before. And so I've and right now I'm doing every Wednesday night I'm doing the Western games unless it's just a single header. And if it's a single header, uh, I'm still working with Eddie and with uh, with Doc. Speaking of Doc, if I say his name, what comes to mind? Brilliant. First thing I think of, brilliant. And such a nice person. Well, he's really nice. That part of it, I think, is just a, a given. Um, his brilliance is amazing. Uh, I've loved working with him the last 14 years. We've been partners. Uh, we solve the world problems every day from uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon when we get to the rink for a game uh, until about 7. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just love being around him and talking with him, and he's a lot like Scotty to me. He's been an amazing mentor. Um, taught me a ton about the TV business, but more than anything else, just uh, he's always got time for everybody, Paul. He has time for everybody, and I respect that part of him so much. And, uh, you know, you're a, you're a guy who has had a huge profile in, in this game, and I, I, I think I know part of the uh, burden that you have to carry is that no matter where you go, the home fans think somehow you're against them. Uh, if you say nice things about the home team, that's pretty much accepted, expected. If you say nice things about the other team, you must like them more than you like our team. Do you have to go through that a lot? Uh, I think earlier on we did. Not any, not so much anymore. I think people realize, for instance, people in Washington, this is a, this is a good story. People in Washington thought, oh, you're just a former Penguin coach and you're a former Stanley Cup winner with the Penguins, so you clearly hate the Capitals. I'm like, no, not really. So about three years ago, Paul, it's a really good story. It shows you how people can change. I, I always go to this one place in Washington to watch games, and I happened to be there a day and a half early. So I walked into this place, and they were having a Capitals watch party. The team was playing in Montreal. So I was sitting there watching the game, and all of a sudden some of the fans recognized me, and they were coming up to me, and some were nice, some weren't, but it's okay. They were, they were all polite. They just had little snide comments. And finally, I said, where are you guys having your watch party? And they go downstairs. I go, do you mind if I join you? So I went downstairs and joined them. And the feedback was awesome. The people realized, you know what? We got this guy wrong. Like, we don't do – no, that's not what he's like at all. And so I think when you get a chance to get out and actually meet the people and talk to them and allow them to ask you questions, they can see that maybe everything that they think they're hearing, they're not hearing. <laughs> because they're not in the passion of watching their team play. I'm going to throw another name at you, Mario Lemieux. Uh, the best way to describe him is gentleman champion. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel so blessed to call him a friend. Um, we live across the lake from one another up in Canada. Um, His house both, is a little bigger than yours, though, I bet. Uh, slightly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way, Paul. He looks down on mine. The only thing where I get bragging rights, I've been in that town since 1965. <laughs> he's kind of he's kind of just gotten there lately, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so we're going through all that stuff. But, yeah, no, it's – Mario's an amazing man, somebody that uh, I will always cherish as a friend. He and Natalie have been great. Uh, my, wife, my wife Melanie and I uh, love spending time with them and um, – you know, I wish it, uh, I would have had the chance to have come there and worked again for the Penguins. Obviously, you know, I was close. Uh, had lots of meetings with Mario and Mr. Morehouse and appreciated those meetings. But uh, Mario's an amazing friend, and I'll always cherish that friendship. You still want to run your own team someday, maybe? I think everybody kind of wants to do that. Um, the best part about my job right now, Paul, I get to coach both teams, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes, I, uh, but, I do. Um I think at some point I'd still like to do that. Um, there are different opportunities that present themselves all the time. I have three years left on my contract at NBC, um, and I don't think there's any way I can get out of that. But after that, we'll see what happens. But right now, I love, by the way, NBC is the best employer I've ever had. I am so grateful for their employment. And uh, Well, they stood by you during your cancer situation last year, did oh, they not? They're off the charts. They're they're an amazing company, and uh, I've been with them for 14 years now, and I'm just so grateful uh, for having met Sam Flood and working for him. And, you know, even going back to Dick Ebersole when he ran it and the way he treated me, and um, I can't even say enough about Mr. Lazarus, who's the president of NBC Sports right now. He's a phenomenal guy, and 
Um, that that stuff that happened last year with my cancer, I'm uh, I can't even begin to tell you how big a role they played uh, in me being able to overcome and win a, my battle against cancer. And let me tell you this: I, I just know from having a conversation with you last year, uh, up you know at the Chatham uh, at the Marriott there. Uh, you know a lot of people. You've met a ton of people outside of the game of hockey as a result of the profile that you have, which has to be a, just a rewarding feeling to know that you're, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you can meet so many prominent folks. I'm gr- I am so grateful for that as well. Um, and I, I, you know, I'll give you an example. You have one of the best football teams in the world playing in your city, and I think Kevin Colbert is one of the smartest executives I've met in any sport. And he's a general manager of the team, and I cherish his friendship. I've talked with Kevin. I have breakfast with Kevin whenever I have a chance to in Pittsburgh. Um, he's been great. He's invited me to come and spend time around the team, and haven't had a chance to do that yet. He invites me to go to training camp, um, which I haven't had a chance to do yet because my kids are so active with sports at that time when they have their training camps. But he's one example of what you're talking about, and. I just think the world of him. <laughs> I guess I'm bragging on him, but I think the world of him. I guess the pay, uh, the Steelers are lucky they have him, too. Yeah, they're doing pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah, they are. Oh, yeah, they are. Hey, and Pierre- I, and so, so, I'm a, so I'm a closet Steeler fan. You know, I live in New England. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you've lived in a few places. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more thing just to go back, 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 and then we'll, we'll, we'll close this out. You were born in Inglewood, New Jersey. You grew up in Montreal, but then you moved back to New Jersey. Did you not? I did. I was recruited to go play at a school called Bergen Catholic. Um, so I spent my last two years of high school at Bergen Catholic. I was the quarterback of the football team, and uh, I played hockey. And uh, in those days, I ran track. And then, um, so I spent my last, my junior and senior year at uh, Bergen Catholic High School, which, by the way, is one of the best high school football teams in the United States and has been since uh the late 1970s there they produced so many guys that have played in the nfl and have played at major division one colleges were you a mobile quarterback or were you just uh... i was like believe it or not i was a little bit like doug flutie if that helps you that's good that's a great way that does you were you were a modern style quarterback okay so how much time did you spend in montreal like following the montreal canadians oh my gosh (laughs) uh the first game I ever saw was the Montreal Canadiens playing the New York Rangers at Old Madison Square Garden, if that helps you. And believe it or not, I remember the game because the official, his name was Frank Udvery, he got hit with a puck and in the face, and he was bleeding all over. And when I was coaching in the league, Mr. Udvery was down working as an off-ice official for the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I went up to him as a young coach, and I said, uh, Mr. Adveri, my name is Pierre Maguire. You would not know who I am, but I was at the game in 1965 at Old Madison Square Garden when you got hit with the puck. And he goes, you were there? I go, yeah, I was there. That was unbelievable. <laughs> well, what about Montreal? Did you go to the Forum? Oh, yeah, I spent so much time at the Forum. You know, Paul, don't tell anybody this, um, but I cut school a lot of times to go watch <laughs> practice. Um, we always had parades in the 1970s when I was there because the team was always winning outside of maybe a couple times that the Bruins had some success with the Flyers. The rest of the time was all owned by the Montreal Canadiens. Their coach, uh, who I eventually worked for and became really good friends with, was just an amazing guy. And I used to deliver the Montreal Star the afternoon. Montreal used to have two papers, the Gazette, the morning paper, and the Star, the afternoon paper. So I delivered the Star. And I used to rush to read the columns of the late, great Red Fisher. And I was delivering that paper. So, yeah, no, lots of good memories about Montreal and growing up there and uh, obviously the Canadians and all the winning that they did. It's kind of funny that the league has instituted so much more access now uh, for players within the room they do here in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, with the Penguins, we do that that show, and every team is doing it. And Red Fisher had access that he created for himself. He would go right into the training room and talk to guys as they were getting stitched up and everything back in the day, didn't he? Well, back in the day, he used to ride on the trains with the players. And one time they initiated him. This is a great story. You might not know it. Red told me this when I started my career with the Canadians. Um, they were on the sleeper train going to Chicago. And all of a sudden, four guys, players in the team, came into Red's sleeping car, and they taped him to his bed. And they all had doctor's masks on. And they shaved him from his <laughs> eyebrows down to his toes. And, and one of the guys that did it was the late, great Rocket Richard. And Red wanted to fight him on the train because he thought he was the instigator. And once Red stood up to him, that gave him instantaneous credibility with that team. 
And remember, now that was a team that won five straight Stanley Cups in the 1950s. So that you talk about that access. He earned that access. Oh. He really did. And by the way, if you ever had to fight Red, I noticed right away he was a lefty. So <laughs> he would fool some people. He would definitely fool some and people. And he just passed away in the last year, did he not? He did. He did. Yes, he did. Well, Pierre, I could go on and on. I really, really enjoy you taking as much time because I know probably every time I've ever talked to you, you get another call coming in from somebody else who wants to pick your brain. So thank you very, very much for taking so much time. And just can't tell you how much I've enjoyed working with you and and, uh, and also just uh, maintaining this relationship and friendship we've had for all these years. Thank you so much. You're a special friend. You're an awesome broadcaster. You're a true professional. And I can't thank you enough for reliving some of these great thoughts. This has been great, Paul. Thank you so much. Okay, Pierre. That's Pierre McGuire. Our thanks to Pierre Maguire, who always wears his 1991 Stanley Cup ring. And more to that subject, the rings that were given to everybody in 1991 look more like high school or college graduation rings. They're the kind of ring you can wear every day. The bigger ones that have been given out since look like they should be mounted on the wall. It's almost impossible to wear them. And I just think it's interesting that Pierre wears his ring just about all the time, which tells you how near and dear to his heart that 1991 Stanley Cup championship is, something that he definitely contributed to, and he deserves a lot of credit. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time.